0: Okay, let's, uh, let's open with prayer. Um, Heavenly Father, Lord, we just, uh, we thank you uh, for this opportunity we have to come together to worship you, to, to learn from your word, to learn about your word, and how you have uh, provided it to your people. And uh, God, I just pray that you would cause us all to just marvel at your work through history, that we would um, just uh, have a, a great delight in your word, that we would value it highly, um, Lord, that you would just cause us to desire to, to read it, to study it, to understand that it is your very words to us, and uh, God, that it would change our lives you know, by the power that you have invested in it, and uh, God, just that you would be glorified in, in all the things that we do, pray in Christ's name, amen. Well, as you can probably tell from my voice, I'm not uh, 100%, so... I apologize in advance if I break into a fit of coffee. I think I'll be okay. All right, so we are continuing our study of how we got the Bible. Um, And this morning we're going to be talking about canon. Uh, But just a a little bit of review. Um, It's kind of been a little bit since we've even looked at this slide. But uh, we're covering how we got the Bible, first off, from a historical perspective. And we've looked at the copying of the text of the, of the Bible um, and the uh, corruption and the restoration um, covering both Old and New Testaments with those issues. Um, and then this morning we're going to talk about canon, which is the question of which books belong in the Bible. Uh, and then we will be talking about uh, in future lessons, uh, translation, um, how that has happened throughout uh, church history. And then we'll look at the theological perspective, uh, where we will be looking at inspiration and inerrancy. So that's again to remind everybody of our of our outline. We we spent a very long time on the corruption and restoration, but it was a very uh, very detailed topic. So, so as we um, talk about uh, the question of canon, the first thing that we really need to ask is what is the canon. Um, that's a somewhat debated question, but um, I think uh, probably a pretty decent definition is that it's a list of books uh, that belong in the Bible. Um, now, one thing that it's um, it's important to look at this, even though we're talking about it from a historical perspective, it's important that we get the theological grounding in um, on these issues. So uh, the canon, is the result of the fact that god inspires some books and not others Um, that's the way that we should understand what the canon is Um, another way to say that is that god inspires and the canon expresses the limitation of that action so canon is not dependent on even our knowledge of what books belong in the bible Um, it's something that the canon comes into existence simply by the act of God inspiring certain books and not inspiring other books. Um, so um, that's, a, that's definitely a very theological approach to it, as opposed to um, you know some people have a, a very naturalistic view of it uh, from the perspective of um, just what did people choose to go into the Bible. Um, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, kind of the the primary verse where we talk about inspiration. And, and of course, we're going to be talking in detail about the doctrine of inspiration, but um, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And that... Um, that phrase, there, breathed out by God," that's where we get the uh, the idea of inspiration. Um, it's it's the idea that um, it's not just the writings of men; um, it's actually what has been breathed out by God. That is what defines uh, what Scripture is. Um, a very related passage, Second Peter, chapter one, verses twenty and twenty-one. Uh, knowing this first of all that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man but men spoke from god as they were carried along by the holy spirit so when we're talking about the scriptures and we're talking about the canon we are specifically talking about um what god has by his supernatural power um, provided for us that it is the very word of God and not the word of man so what the canon is not uh, the canon is not a list of books that the church decided to put in the bible um, that's um, a view that you will often hear presented um, it can come from all sorts of different perspectives from, uh, from a Roman Catholic perspective uh, they would still agree with the idea of inspiration Uh, but they would definitely have the idea that well, you can't actually know what's there unless the church comes along and tells you what belongs in the Bible. Um, And uh, that's that's really a a false view of canon, because canon is, again, it's defined by the fact that God inspires some books and not others. Um, It's not defined by the church deciding things. Or for those who are opposed to Christianity altogether, Um, They would say, oh, well, yeah, these religious people, they just came together and they decided to throw these books together because that's what they wanted everybody to believe. Um, And it's just they picked whatever books matched what they wanted. Uh, They wanted their followers to believe. Um, But neither one of those is the case. Uh, Really, what it amounts to is the church recognizes the canon and does not create the canon. Again, the canon is... Um, it is something that is a byproduct of the fact that God inspires scripture. Um, and so, when we look at a list, um, we, we just come to recognize the list of what it is that God has inspired as opposed to what he is not. And that's kind of foundational. Um, any questions or comments about that? Is that, is that a clear explanation of what we mean when we talk about the camel? So, I think it's
1: important to make the distinction, or in my mind it's, it's important to make the distinction, it's hard to say that the church is not the one that decided what the canon was. Mm-hmm. Because your definition, if you take it at face value, says God provided the canon. Mm-hmm. Where's that canon from God? right. The church had to decipher that, correct? Right. Yes. So the church does decide that, uh-huh. but I, I think like it's just important because of the way it's, the PowerPoint says it, right? Mm-hmm. PowerPoint makes it sound like well the church didn't decide what the canon was. Okay. No, the church was God's mechanism that right? identified what God. Yeah. God has inspired, but yeah. they didn't arbitrarily choose it based on what theology they
0: wanted to develop. Right. Yeah. Yeah, that's uh, that's a good is. clarification. That's good clarification because yeah, I mean my. I probably could have stated that a little better, but, you but know, It's you just get, easy to misinterpret things in yeah. PowerPoint. But the, the emphasis there is that the church recognizes the canon. So the church does decide, you know, use the word decide, it just depends what you mean by decide. Um, it does look at it and say, okay, these are the books that we believe God has inspired. Um, but it doesn't decide in the sense of like, these are the books that we want everybody to read and follow. And so we've just arbitrarily chosen these. So.
1: Well, so, and the church is the authority that recognizes the canon, mm-hmm. is a better way to die. It's a better or word to use. Well, it's almost even. It recognizes the authority, or sorry, the church, the present church, recognizes the authority of the past church, especially the churches that were established by Paul and the Apostles mm-hmm. who originally were the ones gathering all these books together, the church trusts that they were correct
0: mm-hmm.
1: in putting these in as the canon. Right. Because it's not know. something we're actively deciding right now that this is right. this is what was decided so long ago. But we also have to not followed the traffic either where you're running to you Roman Catholics. But we also turn into, you, you know, Got to recognize though that um, the New Testament books are self-authenticating to the church. You know, they contain things within them that show them to be authentic, written by the apostles, as part of the canon. So that way we don't, because we're running really Roman Catholics or Eastern Orthodox, like you know, they'll say, well, the church recognizes the canon, and that's how you have the canon because the church says so through infallibility or through
0: just tradition from thousands of years ago. Right. Yeah, I think I think like the points you guys are making are that, that kind of presents the, the proper balance. Because I mean, we do want to talk about, in a sense, the authority of the church in um, establishing this is the books that, that we believe are scripture. Um, but we don't want to carry that too far <clears throat> because it, it is really the um, it is the self-authenticating nature of Scripture uh, that creates that, and it's not the the church authority in the terms that the Roman Catholic Church views it. So, but we are going to talk about that a little bit in like how how the uh, how the canon is recognized by the church. Um, but yeah, but these are these are good points. So, thank you for bringing that out. Uh, more fully. So, um, so knowing the canon. Um, question, can we as fallible people know infallibly what is in the canon? What do you think? <laughs> Nobody wants to take that one. <laughs> um, can we have a sufficient knowledge of the canon to fulfill God's purposes? Yes. 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 Okay. Yeah. That's, a, that's easy <laughs> to it. yeah, it's, like, it's like, oh, <laughs> uh, you know, or, can we have infallible knowledge? It's like, you know, I mean, I think the right answer is that no, to the we first one, The answer is no, we can't have infallible knowledge. that's It, it It's faith and trust in the Holy Spirit's guidance is right. what. Yeah. Right. So, I mean, that's where, like, the top one says,
1: is clear, like, Martin Luther had a different idea of what was fallible and infallible with Scripture. I don't think Martin Luther was not a Christian. Right. Yeah. The Eastern Orthodox and the Catholics have plenty of problems, but I don't call them outside of the Christian church. Okay. Yeah. You know, like, so obviously we can't say that we're infallible to know what it is because there's many aspects of the church that are still, there's many parts of the body that had differing views on Mm -hmm. the
0: fallible canon versus invaluable canons. Yeah. Christians throughout the ages have had a different list of what they thought belonged in the canon. Um, so, obviously, Christians have been, you know, valuable and able to, to make errors. But we can have a sufficient knowledge. Um, Romans 15.4, uh, just to look at kind of God's purpose in giving us scripture, <clears throat> for whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. So it's God's purpose in giving us the Scripture um, that we uh, endure. We have encouragement. Uh, we have hope. Uh, th- you know, these are things that God wants to happen. Um, and so, the the natural conclusion is, well, God's going to make sure that we have a sufficient understanding of which books belong in the Bible, that we are going to be able to get this benefit from Scripture. Um, James White, I thought, had a really good quote on this. He said, The canon is known infallibly to God by necessity and to man with a certainty directly related to God's purpose in giving the word to the church. So, I mean, I think we can have a great deal of certainty that we have the correct, uh, the correct list of books that belong in the Bible uh, just because that's God's purpose. But it is slightly short of infallible so let's look at the canon uh, and we're going to divide this into Old Testament canon and New Testament canon because um, they, we do have to approach those a little bit differently um, Old Testament canon fundamental to our understanding of the Old Testament canon is uh, something that Paul states in Romans chapter 3 verses 1 and 2 he says then what advantage has the Jew or what is the value of circumcision much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. So Paul states clearly, um, and it's, I mean, you see it just all through both the Old and New Testament, the Jewish people, they were entrusted with the oracles of God. They were given God's word um, and were expected to know, you know, what actually was the word of God. What was, um, you know, was, was Moses actually speaking from God? Were the Prophets actually speaking from God? They were expected to know and respond to these things. Um, and historically, in the first century AD, the Jewish people had a common understanding of which books were inspired by God. Um, that was, the you know, the R39 books of the Old Testament, that's what they had. That was their Old Testament. Um, the only recorded exception, um, is a discussion at Jannia after the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70, in which the rabbis discussed the canonical status of Esther, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, and Ezekiel. And as far as I have been able to discover, we have no evidence that the Jews ever questioned any of the 39 books of the Bible, except for this one instance where we do have some writings that show that some rabbis were discussing this. Um, and, you know... Uh, some rabbis after 70 AD discussing it is probably not going to be something that's really going to affect, you know, what we view as as the canon. When we think about um, the fact that Jesus, you know, we look at what, what was the Bible when Jesus was walking the earth, um, that's really, you know, what we should look at. Ben, do you have something? Matter of curiosity, do you know what they decided when you were discussing? Um... The, uh, the discussion I, I, I don't actually I haven't actually read what they said but I've read discussions of what they said and it sounds like they, you know they they had different views on different books so okay. and different books had uh, different reasons for having you know issues some of them it was it was issues of, of uh, it appeared to contradict some other book or uh, it might be well this book doesn't mention the, the name of God you know things like you know so apparently they brought these discussions up and they came to different conclusions on different books. So, there are some of them that I think they relegated to less than canonical status, but not all five of them. So, but uh, yeah, if you, if you uh, I guess I look at F.F. Uh, Bruce's book on the canon, um, and if you don't have it, I could load it to you if you're interested. He has this discussion where he doesn't actually like give the citations, but he basically just gives you a summary of what their discussions say. So, um, but good question there. Um, so let's look at the question about Jesus and the Old Testament. Um, when we look at what we see in the Gospels, uh, Jesus treated the Old Testament as Scripture. Um, just an example here, Matthew 22 verses 31 to 32, uh, and as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Now one thing that's very interesting here um, is that Jesus is quoting this here. He says, have you not read what was said to you by God? Jesus is viewing this statement to, uh, to Moses as being also a statement to the people of his day. Um so Jesus is very clearly recognizing um the writings of the Old Testament as God speaking to us who are centuries later reading them. Um, so I mean I don't think there's gonna be any dispute here. That's clearly that was Jesus' view of the Old Testament. Um Jesus' opponents treated the Old Testament as scripture as well. Matthew uh, chapter 19 verse 7 is just an example. Uh, they said to him, "Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate certificate of divorce and send her away?" So they're discussing marriage and divorce, and Jesus's opponents. They're like, "Well, we're going to cite scripture too. We're going to we're going to point out what Moses said and see how do you how do you reconcile that with your teaching?" Because they they wanted to hold Jesus to being biblical as well. So. And, you know, and we see all sorts of disputes <clears throat> between Jesus and his adversaries. Um, but what's interesting is that nowhere in the gospel accounts do we, do we see a dispute over canon. I mean, they, they had disputes over all sorts of religious issues, all sorts of uh, theological issues, all sorts of practices. Um, but you never see them having a dispute with Jesus about which books to include in the Bible then did you? Yeah. Well, and I think it's interesting too. Like the the, the Pharisees, they had their traditions, mm-hmm. which they called traditions. Mm-hmm. Which Jesus called traditions, and then they had the scriptures, and they very carefully delineated against mm-hmm. these. And Jesus was usually calling them out on setting them over mm-hmm. the scriptures. Yeah, way. that's exactly right. That is where you see the dispute, where Jesus is is condemning them for setting their traditions over the scriptures. Um, But, but yeah, clearly his enemies recognized, like, here's scriptures, here's our tradition, and, you know, they they set too high a stock on their traditions, but there was complete agreement, as far as we can tell, complete agreement about what books belonged in the Old Testament. So, I mean, I think that's a pretty good indication uh, that we actually have the proper Old Testament canon. Now. I'm not going to read all of these, but there is a, a whole list of Old Testament Apocrypha books. Um, some of them are, you know, relatively, you know, not too bad. Some of them are pretty bad, but um, but we have the Old Testament apocrypha. Now, some people, um, notably like the Roman Catholics, um, will accept the apocrypha as actually canon. So, we'll talk about this a little bit. Um, The inclusion in the Septuagint of the Apocrypha uh, led many to believe that they were canonical. Uh, The the Church, by and large, was Greek-speaking. The Septuagint was their Greek translation of the Old Testament. So they're getting their New Testament. You know, It's all written in Greek. And it looks like, well, we've already got our Old Testament. And they're going with the Greek translation. And typically, copies of the Septuagint uh, would contain the Apocrypha. And so many Christians just assumed that was part of the Old Testament. Um, And so that that was what led some people to believe, um, at least that's, it seems reasonable that that's what led some people to believe that the Apocrypha belonged in Scripture. Uh, But it is interesting to note that the New Testament authors never quote any book of the Apocrypha as Scripture. There are a handful of allusions to uh, things in the Apocrypha, uh, but never do they actually cite anything as if it's Scripture out of the Apocrypha. in Jewish sources, <clears throat> I really apologize for my voice. Jewish sources uh, give the number of books as 22 or 24 books for the Old Testament. Now, some people might be saying, "Well, wait a second here. I thought there was 39 books in the Old Testament. How do you get how do you get 22 or 24?" Oh no, this is really unfortunate. Um, it looks so different on the other computer. Wow. Okay. Well, hopefully you can make make sense of this because it's uh, it was all nice in columns, um, but uh, it it should be just four columns of got 39 books here. Um, How do you get uh, 22 or 24 books out of it? Um, Well, you can pretty easily just see the way that they combined books. So we've got ah man, it's not even showing because it's in red here, but. This is 1st and 2nd Samuel. You got 1st and 2nd Kings, they were counted together. 1st and 2nd Chronicles, they were counted together. Ezra and Nehemiah, they were counted together. And then the 12 minor prophets were all counted together. And that comes up with 24 books. So the way they counted it, there's your 24 books of the Old Testament. Or you could also I guess you can. Yeah, it still doesn't look near as good as it does on my screen. Judges and Ruth can be combined, and Jeremiah and Lamentations can be combined, and then you get the 22. So that's the way they would count the books, Um, (coughs) and they did not uh, split them all out individually like we do. So that's the reason that we, uh, you know, that, that they would count it as 22 or 24 books as opposed to the the 39 that we're accustomed to.
1: Um, that also kind of makes, <coughs> sorry, it makes, brings a little bit of clarity why, as you see them quoted in the New Testament by Christ and the apostles, they say, did not the prophets say? Mm-hmm, it's right, like us yeah. saying, wasn't it in Matthew that right. they're just saying, look to the scrolls of the prophets, mm-hmm. and they're just combining them in, in the way that they've organized their thoughts? Mm-hmm, right. Yeah. Not only that, but don't they specifically pull out mm-hmm. Isaiah? As the it says the prophet Isaiah versus the prophets plural. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it just kind
0: of makes sense that that's just the way that they Mm -hmm. it was when you went to the to the bookshelf it's in the the prophets right or it's in yeah and 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 sometimes they would also like um, they would if they were be quoting multiple uh, prophets sometimes they would only list one of them like if they were if they were quoting. for example, if they were quoting Isaiah, and I don't know if there's ever an example of this, but if they were quoting Isaiah and Malachi, then they might just say as Isaiah says, and then they would provide both quotes, and they wouldn't point out that like um, it's happening in multiple you know, places. So yeah, it's, uh, it's it it is interesting that like the more you, I mean, we we only have like a, a limited understanding of the way they collected their books, just because you know information is scarce. Uh, but like in terms of like the order of the books. Um, you know, I know that there's a, a, at least a common understanding that Second Chronicles, or you know, First and Second Chronicles, would have been at the end of their Old Testament. Um, and so, like, there's a statement that Jesus makes along the way that um, that like really makes more sense if you view uh, the, the Book of Chronicles as being the end of the Old Testament. So there's all sorts of things you can get out of that, but again, our knowledge of it is somewhat fragmentary. I think another interesting piece is. We always think of it as a collection of
1: books that are all together, mm-hmm. but they truly were separate books mm-hmm. because paper was scarce. You couldn't bind mm-hmm. a thousand pages together right. in a really easy way like we do today. So,
0: first and second chronicles was a book, yeah. and it was literally. They, you might not have had it in every single one of the different areas. It might have traveled, and
1: that that's going to be part of it too. Is the order of them didn't matter as much. Right. That was more like where they sat on a shelf right, yeah. or in a special place yeah. within the um, synagogue. Yeah,
0: and they would have been um, done as scrolls. And so you, and you, you're you not going to have just like one really long scroll with the entire Old Testament on it. That'd just be ridiculous. Um, so they were, you know, they were divided into individual scrolls. Um, as far as I know, um, there's no indication that um, a codex, a, a book where you turn the pages like we're used to, um, even existed until um, like the first century. So uh, it's, it's you know, technology that they just didn't really even have um, at the time. They would just have a scroll where they would write on one side. It's like, you know, they were limited by that, so yeah, you'd have your scrolls of the Old Testament, but it's not necessarily in a particular order. Um, <clears throat> I do think it's worthwhile to uh, take a look at one of the uh, important statements about uh, the Old Testament books. We have a statement from Josephus uh, in, uh, against Appion, as the word this comes from. So it's somewhat of a lengthy quote, but um, it's worth looking at. It's just a, a first century uh, Jewish person who discussed these things. Uh, he says, For we have not an innumerable multitude of books among us, disagreeing from and contradicting one another, as the Greeks have, but only 22 books, which contain the records of all past times, which are justly believed to be divine. And of them, five belong to Moses, which contain his laws and the traditions of the origin of mankind till his death. Uh, this interval of time uh, was little short of 3,000 years, but as for the time uh, from the death of Moses till the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, who reigned after Xerxes, uh, the prophets who were after Moses wrote down what was done in their times in 13 books. The remaining four books contain hymns to God and precepts uh, for the conduct of human life. It is true, our history hath been written since Artaxerxes, very particularly, but hath not been esteemed of the like authority with the former by our forefathers, because there hath not been an exact succession of prophets since that time. And how firmly we have given credit to these books of our own nation is evident by what we do for during so many ages as have already passed no one has been so bold as to either add anything to them to take anything from them or to make any change in them but it has be- become natural to all jews immediately and from their very birth to esteem these books uh, that contain the divine doctrines and to persist in them and if occasion be willing to be, be willingly to die for them. So, obviously, a very high view of Scripture uh, attested amongst the Jewish people there. Um, even a discussion of the fact that there are other books that came after the the finishing of the Old Testament. That's, that's the, the where we get the Apocrypha, you know, the Maccabees and stuff like that. Josephus is very aware of these things um, and he even quotes them in his writings. Um, but he understands that like the Jewish people did not view these things as Scripture. Um, well, look at the, the Vulgate and the Apocrypha. This is uh, interesting here. Uh, prior to the Vulgate, uh, Latin translations of the Bible, uh, which we usually call Old Latin, um, they used the Greek Septuagint for the Old Testament. So, it's just basically people want to translate the Bible into Latin, they go get their Greek New Testament and their Greek translation of the Old Testament, and they translate that all into Latin. Um, <coughs> Jerome believed that translations of the Old Testament should be based on the original Hebrew rather than the Greek translation. And so he moved to Bethlehem in 386. He learned Hebrew, he discussed the Hebrew text with the Jewish teachers, and became quite proficient in the language. Um, and his Old Testament translation into Latin, which he did between 390 and 405, did not include the Apocrypha. So that was his assessment, is that well, the Apocrypha doesn't belong in Scripture. Um, he's talking to the Jewish people, he's living there um, in Bethlehem, talking to them, and he understands this is something the Jews don't consider to be Scripture. And so when he did uh, the Vulgate, he did not include it. Uh, you might say, well, but the Vulgate has the Apocrypha, how did that happen? Well, after his death, uh, the Apocrypha was inserted into the Vulgate from the Old Latin. So it was, you know, it was obviously very popular um, in the church, um, and people were used to it being in their Latin Bibles, and so um, they were like, well, let's let's go ahead and put this back in there. So let's look at the Christian reception of the Apocrypha. Um, the Apocrypha was accepted at the popular level. A lot of people, they were just used to reading it. They assumed it was Scripture. It was in their Greek Bibles. It was in a lot of their Latin Bibles. Um, but the most well-informed about Judaism and the Hebrew language rejected them. Um, And that held true up to the Reformation. You can just walk through uh, the period from, you know, from Origen and Jerome um, all the way up to the Reformation. Um, Even at the time of the Reformation, some people who stayed on the Roman Catholic side had prior to the Reformation written, these are not scripture. Um, So the people who were in the know basically said, the Apocrypha is not scripture. It shouldn't be part of the canon. But then the Roman Catholic Church declared the Apocrypha to be canonical, um, kind of in response to the Reformation. Uh, but the Protestants rejected them as non-canonical. Um, so just as we look at you know, all of history, there's just all sorts of pointers that indicate that we shouldn't be adding the Apocrypha to our Old Testament. Um, it changed our number of books. Uh, Jews just didn't seem to accept it as scripture. Um, one just uh, little interesting statement. Um, Second Maccabees, this is in the Apocrypha, 1537-38 uh, says, so I, too will, so I too will hear in my story. If it is well told and to the point, that is what I myself desired. If it is poorly done and mediocre, that was the best I could do. And it's not the type of statement you expect to see in the word of God. Um, And looking at the clock, I'm not going to read this, but there's a really fascinating quote uh, by Metzger where he kind of uh, goes over the problems with Tobit. So I would encourage you to either look that up or ask me about it or something, but um, just time is running by fast and we're not going to look at that. So we're going to look at the New Testament canon now. Any, Any questions or comments about Old Testament canon?
1: The only other thing that I think is a good thing to call out is when you look at the Septuagint, mm-hmm. they call out the Apocrypha. They don't call it the Apocrypha; they have like some other name, Deuterocanonical or mm-hmm, something. Yeah. But they call it out, saying, "Here's the other books." Right. And it was separated out as like an addition. It's like an appendix. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, um, I think it's important for people to, to also know that the Septuagint didn't just list them as books. They were like an appendix. Right.
0: The way that we would add things to the end of our study Bibles. Right. Here's a yeah. commentary on. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that, that is true. I mean, I, I think that most likely the, the Jews who translated the uh, the Bible into Greek, the Old Testament into Greek, um, they understood these are not Scripture, but they just included them along with it. Uh, and you, you see the same thing happen with the New Testament, where there are other books um, that um, we could call the New Testament Apocrypha that were sometimes included in copies of the Bible. But yes, it is very much like... A study bible where it's like yeah we're going to tack these on at the end because these are useful things for Christians to read but we don't view them as scripture I mean they you know they didn't have the luxury of like well, we're just going to have you know print this copy here is this is our bible and then you know all these other copies these are our other books that go along with the bible um, you know it was just like it was convenient to just like well, let's let's throw this extra stuff in here that way it's all collected in one place so yeah that's a good point the, the Septuagint, uh, as far as I know every copy of the Septuagint we have with the Apocrypha puts the Apocrypha and basically separated at the end. Um, now in the New Testament Canon, um, this is a little different than just saying well the Jews accepted these books so we should accept them too. This is the recognition of the Canon was a process that took time. Um, <clears throat> from the earliest periods Everyone accepted the four Gospels. And from everything we can see is like that in particular was just like, yep, four Gospels. Those are those are scripture. No more Gospels than that, just Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Those were our four Gospels. Um, evidence indicates broad agreement about most books in the New Testament. Just very early on, uh, we see that like people accepted the vast majority of the books of the New Testament. Um, There were a handful of books in our New Testament uh, that were disputed. Um, Some of the smaller books uh, were books that they would get cited less often, and sometimes people would say, I'm not sure if that's scripture. Um, So there were some books from the New Testament that were disputed. There are also a handful of books that are not in our New Testament that were disputed. So a handful of books that people said, well, maybe this is scripture, but today is not in our New Testament canon. And we're gonna we're gonna look at that a little bit here, um, but we want to talk about tests for canonicity. Um, so, what types of things were uh, Christians in the early centuries looking at uh, when they were considering what was what was uh, what belonged in the Bible and what didn't? Um, and these are things where, if you read their writings, you can see them making arguments uh, along these lines. Um, but Uh, The first is simply apostolic authority. Um, And I've got a passage here that, you know, kind of exemplifies this. Acts chapter 10, verse 39 through 42. Uh, Here Peter uh, is speaking at the home of Cornelius, and he says, And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. He's speaking of Jesus, by the way. Uh, They put him kind of just this, um, this understanding of God has selected certain people in this New Testament period um, to be those who would proclaim the message of God. Uh, those are the people who witnessed what Jesus did, uh, who had the authority to uh, proclaim the teachings. Um, and so, uh, now that did not mean that you had to be a, an eyewitness of Jesus to, you know, to wind up in the New Testament. Because um, there are a number of the books that we have, uh, for example, Luke and Mark, um, where it's more of an issue of they were um, associated with apostles who were eyewitnesses, and so they derived their authority from them. But um, but all of the, but as they were looking at books trying to figure out what should belong in the Bible, that was the question, what has apostolic authority? Um, so. Yes, uh, you know, Mark wasn't an apostle, but Mark was the companion of Peter. And uh, as far as we know, it's like, basically, he, he got his information for the Gospel of Mark uh, by talking to Peter. And so Mark has apostolic authority on those grounds. Second, um, consistent with earlier scripture. Um, this is just a good biblical principle. Uh, Acts 17, verse 11. Uh, now, these Jews were more noble uh, than those at Thessalonica. Uh, They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. So there, Paul is preaching to uh, some people at Berea, and they're like, we're going to check out what you say and see if it's consistent with scripture. Um, And that's certainly something that was was looked at when people were looking at books. And they're like, well, is is this actually something that's scripture? And if it's something that just like totally deviated from everything that you found in the in the Old Testament and the New Testament books that had already been, uh, you know, widely accepted, they're saying no, this this is not scripture. So, had to be consistent with uh, what what already had been revealed by God. Um, divine qualities. This one's a little a little hard uh, to explain in detail. Um, Hebrews four twelve says, uh, "For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two edged sword." piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intents of the heart. Um, how to exactly explain what we mean by divine qualities is really hard, but, um, but it's just been noted throughout history that like there's something that happens uh, when people read the word of God, and their attitudes toward it change, and uh, their recognition of what it does inside of them is something that is just very profound. Um, and I imagine that most of you have had that experience where you read the Bible, and there's just something about it. It just hits you. It's just, it sees inside of you. It knows all of your faults. Um, it it just, it does things that no other book you ever read uh, is capable of doing. And we see through history just numerous people, uh, you know, having the same testimony. And many people who, you know, skeptical of Christianity, you know, they pick up the Bible and they read it and suddenly they've changed their mind, not necessarily because of any particular argument, but just because of the power of the word of God. So, um, so that's definitely a consideration. Does this book have divine qualities? Does it have that, um, that ability to change people's lives? Um, that's something that was definitely considered. And finally, accepted by God's people. Um, and this kind of goes back to the to the idea of the church uh, determining the canon, just as long as we understand, determining in the right way. Um, and, I mean, this is based on a simple principle uh, that Jesus uh, explained in John chapter 10, verses 24 through 27. Um, here he's disputing with some Jews, and he says, The Jews gathered around him and said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you did not, and you do not believe. Uh, the works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you have not believed because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice; I know them, and they follow me. So the principle there is that God's sheep hear His voice. Um, we, if we just consider what Christians have. Have looked at and have have come to the conclusion. This is what we believe Scripture is. Um, we can we can trust that uh, because we know that God's sheep hear His voice. Um, Christians are going to read the Scripture and they're gonna they're gonna have that understanding. This is the voice of God, um, and select the proper books uh, accordingly. So. So basically the the in a sense it's the it's the, the corporate or universal acceptance of the church is something that we look at. It's like is this something that just like a handful of people off to the side view as scripture or is this something that the church as a whole has just recognized? You know, it's just like no no matter where you go, everybody says, Yeah, Matthew, that's scripture. So um, and so that makes it very plain. Any questions about that? Those are kind of our our um, qualifications, our, our tests for canonicity. Um, New Testament Apocrypha, some some books that um, at various points were discussed as possibly uh, belonging in the New Testament. Um, I'm not gonna read all these, but you know, Epistle of Barnabas, first and second Clement, Shepherd of Hermes. Uh, Shepherd of Hermes, or Shep- Shepherd of Hermes is, is definitely one that gets mentioned a lot. Um, But these are books that, uh, some of them are fairly early, um, and certain people viewed them as scripture. But in the end, the church, uh, even if they would say, yes, these can be helpful. These can be helpful to you if you read them. um, The conclusion that the church reached was these are not actually scripture. These do not belong in the canon. Um, You also have some some books that didn't make it into the canon um, that are, uh, a bit worse, uh, you have the Gnostic writings, for example. Um, Gnosticism is a a, a competing religion of Christianity that uh, attempted to basically commandeer some of the Christian teaching, uh, but had a completely different theology. Our Gnostic writings are all second century or later. So they're basically excluded from having apostolic authority because uh, none of them were written by, uh, by eyewitnesses, and none of them Uh, were written by uh, people who even talked with the eyewitnesses. Um, They contain teachings uh, not consistent with the Old Testament or the first century apostolic books. Um, And we're not going to go into that in detail, um, but it is definitely worth mentioning the Gospel of Thomas. That's probably the Gnostic Gospel that gets brought up the most. And. I always find it interesting to, to point out one of the things that the Gospel of Thomas says. If you've, if you've heard about these things, you're probably familiar with this quote already because it's kind of an out-there quote, but um, if you're not, then it's, it's definitely worth seeing. Um, so one thing you see in the Gospel of Thomas says, uh, Simon Peter says to them, let Mary go out of our midst, for women are not worthy of life. And Jesus says, see, I will draw her so as to make her male. So that she also may become a living spirit like you males, for every woman who has become male will enter the kingdom of heaven. That's a pretty bizarre statement, um, but um, I mean I don't know of anybody who would actually say that they agree with that theology. But the Gospel of Thomas is often promoted as as being this you know the really early reliable state uh, you know view of, of you know who Jesus was, um, but. It's, I mean, it's a second century work by some people who uh, rejected um, the uh, the Jesus of the Bible. It's interesting, the Gospel of Thomas is just a collection of sayings. Um, it does not put Jesus in a historical context at all. It doesn't tell you anything he did. It's just this long list of sayings. And uh, Thomas didn't have anything to do with writing it. But... Uh, It became very popular, excuse me. (coughs) It became very popular to, when people would write uh, competing books for the New Testament, uh, that they would attribute their books to the apostles in order to try to give them apostolic authority. And so they would just name them these things, uh, just in an attempt to give them credibility, um, even though they were not actually by the um, the people that, that they put in the titles. Um, As we look through history, um, the New Testament um, was treated as scripture, and we see that happening very early on. I mean, the the New Testament was finished late in the first century. Early in the second century, we start getting um, Christians who are quoting scripture, who are are, are quoting New Testament books and viewing it as scripture. And you can look up, you know, the quotes. I didn't want to, you know, take the time to just go through all of these people's quotes, but um, Michael Kruger does a great job of of going through this stuff and showing that these people um, viewed uh, the New Testament documents as scripture. Uh, We have Polycarp uh, writing about 110, Ignatius also writing about 110, uh, Papias about 125, Justin Martyr 150 to 160, uh, Theophilus of Antioch, 177, Irenaeus, Irenaeus, about 180, Clement of Alexandria, about 198. Um, And so all sorts of uh, early Christians were just, this was just, this was just part and parcel of what they were doing, was they were looking at the New Testament documents and they were viewing them as scripture. Um, This also happened in the New Testament itself, you can go back into the first century. Um, Paul for example uh, was treating New Testament documents of scripture in 1 Timothy 5.18 he says for scripture says you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain and the laborer deserves his wages. Now the first quote is out of the Old Testament but the second is out of the Gospel of Luke. Uh, Luke 5 through 7, Luke 10 5-7 uh, whenever you whatever house you enter first say peace be to this house and if a son of peace is there, uh, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, uh, it will return to you and remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide. For the laborer deserves his wages. Uh, do not go from house to house. Um, and, uh, I mean, there's, there's really no other known source that we could go to for what Paul would be quoting when he says the laborer deserves his wages other than this passage from Luke. So... Um, so Paul, obviously, he's he's quoting uh, the Gospel of Luke, even though like Luke was his companion, um, you know. So they were very contemporary, but he viewed what Luke wrote in the Gospel um, as uh, as scripture. Um, we also see that Peter viewed what Paul wrote as scripture. Second um, Peter chapter three verses fifteen and sixteen, and I know. We've we've looked at this passage uh, numerous times in, in Sunday school lessons, but uh, it's worth uh, worth repeating. Uh, and count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote you uh, wrote to you, according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters. When he speaks in them of these matters, there are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do the other scriptures. And so they're very clearly, Peter is viewing uh, Paul's writings as scripture. Now, we also have um, some lists of New Testament books that uh, start appearing in church history. It's not as early as our quotations, um, but we do have some lists. Uh, the oldest we have is what's known as the Muratorian Fragment, um, it's dated approximately 8180. Uh, uh, the beginning of it is damaged, but the first full sentence uh, gives Luke as the third gospel, so we can we can assume that um, he'd already done Matthew and Mark, um, and then he just goes through New Testament books. Um, it's almost identical to what we have. Um, he omits Hebrews, James, and First and Second Peter. Um, um, nobody's really sure why. Um, uh, it could be that where wherever he was writing, that was disputed. Um, it's also possible it was just a textual variant. Um, we, we just don't know. It's, it's just a it's a fragmentary piece of information. Um, he also includes uh, the Apocalypse of Peter, but includes a statement which some of our people will not have to be read in the church. So definitely recognized that uh, the Apocalypse of Peter was um, was a, a disputed book. Also has the wisdom of Solomon, which is interesting because it's an Old Testament book. Um, And so it's like, why would that be in a New Testament canon? And it's like, we don't really know. I mean, Wisdom of Solomon probably would have been, you know, fairly late. And so it may have been considered New Testament period. Um, But it's also possible that if you had the entire thing that he wrote, he went through the Old Testament canon and just kept his disputed books to the very end of, you know, of both canon lists. Excuse me. But then, continuing on, <clears throat> we also have some other ones. Uh, Eusebius, in the early fourth century, um, he lists James, Jude, Second 2 Peter, Second, 2, Third John as disputed, uh, but otherwise his list is identical to what we have today. So it's you know he has the same list, but he does mention that some of them are disputed books that some people uh, would question whether they belong to <laughs> the Bible. But then when we get to these other canon lists, they are absolutely identical to our New Testament list. Uh, Athanasius in 367, the Council of Hippo uh, in 397, uh, and the Council of Carthage in three, sorry. Hippo is 393, Carthage is 397. Sorry, I'm trying to rush too much here. Um, So we have, when we have lists, I mean, Really, they all agree that the, the Muratorian fragment is the only one that has any significant disagreement with ours, and Eusebius, uh, you know, just is mentioning that some of the books are disputed, but but basically all of our lists more or less agree with what we have. So that seems to be what the church was accepting. Uh, there was this consensus growing that that was, that was what belonged in the Bible. Um, <clears throat> Codex Sinaiticus, which we talked about uh, last week, about the discovery of Codex Sinaiticus. Um, it's from the fourth century. It's our oldest complete New Testament. So it's the it's the the oldest book we have that contains all the way Matthew to Revelation, um, and it contains our 27 New Testament books. Um, it also has the letter of Barnabas and the Shepherd of Hermas, and I'm pretty sure it's just like what Chase was saying, where they are set aside as extra uh, extra books that are helpful, um, but not included as a part of the actual New Testament, but they are included there. Uh, and it also has Old Testament Apocrypha, because if you remember the Codex Sinaiticus is Old and New Testaments, it's a, it's a complete Bible, there's pieces of the Old Testament that are, you know, the pages have come out and are missing, but, um, but when we look at the Old Testament, they had Old Testament Apocrypha, um, and then New Testament, they apparently had a couple of, of New Testament, uh, Apocrypha books. As well, I mean, we're just almost out of time. But we're almost done here. Um, so just just a quick note here: um, the need for a list developed basically because uh, false teachers disputed what was accepted by the church. That was that was really the thing that drove uh, the you know it's like we need to actually get an official list and say this is what everybody should be accepting. Um, you know, for for centuries, people had just they just understood. These are the books of the New Testament, um, but it was really just the, the heretics that were coming out providing false teaching that uh, that caused them to actually put down a book. So just in conclusion, um, I know that was lots of information. Hopefully I didn't go too fast, um, but we can be confident um, that we have uh, the proper list of books that, uh, that God in his purpose has made sure that we have a sufficient understanding of what we of, of what is the inspired word of God versus what are books that are written by men. Um, and just to reiterate God's purposes, um, Isaiah chapter 55, verses 9 through 11 uh, says, For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose, and shall succeed in the thing for which I send it. So God's going to accomplish his purpose. He's going to make sure that his church has his word, um, and so we can be confident that the the books that were eventually settled on uh, by Christians um, are the books that we should actually have in our New Testament. Any final thoughts or comments?
1: If you go back to the one that has Eusebius in it, I think it's just worth to note one of the things that I've, I think we have done a couple more. Um, Oops. There we go. His list there, I think it also, it included also Revelation, the shepherd of hermus and, and Barnabas. Cause he was including both ones that truly there and which were not. He was really just saying these are the ones that are disputed. Mm -hmm. He wasn't defining here's what it is and isn't. And if you look at our Protestant tradition, the Lutheran denomination based on the confessions of Luther, basically Luther followed Eusebius in his interpretation of this. And he he still puts them into his Bible, Mm -hmm. but he basically says all of these books should be treated with suspicion Okay. Like, maybe that's a strong connotation word, mm-hmm. but he basically... My understanding of, of Luther's perspective on it was, you, c- you could still learn from these, they're still good books, mm-hmm. but if you take a theology directly from one of these books and you can't find it supported elsewhere in Scripture, then you could be going too far. Okay. And that's that's the way Luther and the whole Lutheran church treats that Eusebius list, okay. is these are... These are books that that may be inspired by God, uh-huh. but they have suspicion about them. Uh-huh. And their real strong point is, if your theology is based on just one of these books and you can't find it elsewhere, that's something that you should be concerned with, which is really a big piece with, of course, when you get to Revelation is the big one. Because so much of Revelation Sure. Has so much interpretation by itself, and then, mm-hmm. yeah. um, and that I just think that's a really interesting one because from a Protestant Reformed tradition, mm-hmm. that's one of the biggest pieces that's different between the Lutheran and the rest of the Reformed traditions. Okay, is that approach to those books? Mm-hmm. It, it's gotten less and less, from what I can tell, from talking to modern mm-hmm. Lutherans. But if you read Luther's Confessions, he'll talk very specifically about Eusebius. Okay,
0: yeah, I'm I'm not as familiar with the exact. <clears throat> Luther take on it. I, I may have made a mistake here. I didn't think uh, Revelation was included there, but uh, Eusebius is basically has three ca- three categories of books, like the accepted books, the disputed books, and then he has the rejected books. And so I deliberately just left off the rejected books. It's, you know, yeah. it's it's a lot of the the books that I had for a <clears throat> New Testament apocrypha, yeah. uh, you know, Shepherd of Hermas, stuff like that, uh, where it's like, these are books that people have talked about, but they've been basically at Eusebius's time, he's saying these have been rejected, but I'll have to check and see if I just overlooked Revelation when I was looking at it. But yeah, I've always seen it
1: in the ones in the readings I've done, but mm-hmm. I haven't read Eusebius directly to Right. confirm
0: that. Okay. But yeah, that's good extra extra stuff there on Lutheranism. Some... Anything else? All right, well, let's uh, let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we just uh, thank you for your Word. We thank you that. <coughs> You accomplish your purposes; uh, that your word uh, will indeed go forth and accomplish all that you have sent it out to do. So, God, I just pray that you would uh, you would accomplish much with your word; that uh, you would just impress our minds with uh, the truths of Scripture; uh, that you would uh, send your word out to uh, convert the lost. Uh, God, that you would uh, just. Uh, that you would bless the preaching of your word in your church. Um, God, just we thank you uh, for your great providence, uh, your uh, divine care in making sure that we have your word. And uh, we just pray that we would uh, live lives that are uh, worthy of the calling which you have called us. In Christ's name, amen.